I'll tell you what, let's take a moment, let's pray. We'll jump in. Father, thankful for your word and uh, the goodness uh, that it speaks of. And Father, as we tackle a difficult subject and work through it to continue forward in Deuteronomy, help us, Lord, to uh, grasp, um, to beginning to understand according from your perspective uh, about what this situation uh, of holy war, uh, of Yahweh war, really speaks of. Uh, so help us, Father, to um, be open to receiving the truth. We pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, or if you have your notes, I want to give you uh, some Scripture references starting out. Just so you know, in case you weren't here last week, we are in Deuteronomy chapter 3. And the idea that we're looking at is uh, the children of Israel have been uh, traveling and they've come to the, to the place where they can finally cross over into the promised land for the second time. The first generation forfeited that opportunity to receive the inheritance because of unbelief, because they listened to the words that guys wanted to bring them instead of trusting what God had said. Uh, there were great ramifications and consequences to making that choice. Uh, it was not good at all, and so they wandered for 38 years, and now they are on the cusp of coming into the land and before they do so, Moses wants to uh, first give them their history, their most recent history, in order to warn them of the dangers of disobedience, but also to encourage them uh, that the Lord is faithful completely. What is? Oh, you turned your phone off? Thank you, Laverne. So the trailer, don't need to have the phone on during church. I love it. As long as we got our priorities in order, that's all that matters. Um, so I want to... Uh, what we're dealing with now is, is by recounting the history of Israel, uh, God is speaking of the great disobedience that happens, but he's also bringing to mind the recent victories that they have, what they've accomplished. And we find two characters that they've come against, and that's Sihon, king of the Amorites. And then you also have another guy named Og of Bashan. Uh, and, and Mitch, whenever you get a chance, if you want to bring up one of the maps, if you wouldn't mind to bring up one of the new maps I gave him, I, I found some really great maps. Uh, really excited. Maps are just fun. Study your Bible, have your maps. Good stuff. You can never do without a word study book, a concordance, a theological dictionary, and your maps. This right here is actually the conquest listed out of Israel, okay? So notice down here we talked about Edom from Esau, right? Moab and Ammon come from the lineage of Lot, so they were considered your brothers, passed through there, don't touch any of their stuff. Give them money for what you buy and drink, the whole thing like that. But then when we got into this area right in here, this river right here being the Arnon River, you get into this, and this is the realm of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Heshbon is located right there. The children of Israel come up this direction, don't mess with any of these people, and before they get to Ammon, they cross over, and this is where everything starts to go down. Then after they conquer Sihon, king of Heshbon, they move up into this area, and this, Gilead right here, this part right here is known as Bashan, okay? And Og, dealing up here, here's Edri. Og, this idea of Bashan all throughout this area, was everything that was conquered in that. And then up here in the very, or sorry, there's Bashan. Up here is Mount Hermon, up at the very top. Uh, can you bring up the other map that I gave you, if you wouldn't mind? Okay. No, it's good. So notice you got the region of Bashan here. It's more at an angle. Here's the Gaza Strip, that whole thing. Uh, here's here's uh, Bashan right here. Section of Ammon here, Gilead. 
And then when you deal with uh, Mount Hermon, which we're going to see some today in Deuteronomy 3, it's actually located up here. The span that the children of Israel conquered in just these two kings overthrowing them because the Lord was their protector and the warrior, essentially, the warrior God on their behalf, is a span of 140 miles. 140 miles immediately conquered out. Uh, now I say that because we're dealing with the idea of what it is to utterly destroy, uh, to devote to destruction, some of your translations say. Some of them say to set a ban against you is the idea. And it's the idea in Hebrew of what is known as harem, okay? And I hate using the guttural, it's so gross. Uh, but anyway, harem is the idea. Exactly. Everybody, everybody, anybody ever been to a Gallagher show where he's smacking watermelons and stuff and they put up the plastic? Anybody know that guy? Okay. Yeah, okay. It's, it has to be with me preaching today. We had a meeting yesterday. I accidentally spit on Sandy Shetko. It was not good. Uh, so anyway, uh, besides the fact, uh, so you have to watch out for me. Uh, but we're talking about harem. And if you've got your handout, we were dealing with in 224, stretching into chapter 3, when we deal with Sihon and Og, these kings, how should we think about holy war? Probably what's more properly named is Yahweh war. And I give you two scripture references there that go back and recount the actual event in real time from Numbers 21 of when these events taken place. Now, you've got a large space underneath there. If you've run out of space from writing down notes, I want to have you turn it over, but I want to give you some scripture references that we're going to look at real quick before we go back to chapter three and pick up and try to make it to, um, I don't know, probably uh, verse 12, I think it is. Verse, verse 11, verse 12. Anyway, let me give you these scripture references. Deuteronomy 7, you can just write D-E-U-T, Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 6 and verse 16. Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 6, and verse 16. And we're going to look at all these. I just want you to have them written down so you can refer back to them later. So we're going to do it now. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 through 18. Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 through 18. Forgive me, I'm, my, my throat's really dry. And then Joshua 11, verses 10 through 14. Joshua 11, 10 through 14. Let me point out to you real quick, before you turn there, if you're in Deuteronomy 2, look at verse 24. Is it 24? No, that's where it starts. Uh, let me see here. Uh, verse 34, forgive me. So we captured all of his cities at that time and utterly destroyed the men, women, and children of every city. We left no survivors. Look down at chapter 3, verse 6. We utterly destroyed them. That is the word harem, okay? Uh, as we did to Sihon, king of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city. Everybody see that, okay? This is really hard to deal with because the atheist immediately wants to say to you, your God is not a loving God, immediately. Now, let me ask you a question before we turn to chapter 7. How would you deal with that? Let's say you're having a conversation with somebody, the idea of religion pops up, uh, and, and then, of course, you pull the classic, I don't believe in religion, I believe in relationship, right? You pull that whole thing and you start talking to him about Jesus. And you say, didn't, didn't God in the Old Testament have people killed, men, women, and children? And you have to answer, yeah. 
Well, how, how could God be a God of love then? How could God love me if that's the case? How do you answer something like that? I mean, this is one of the big apologetic questions that people have. How can, how can God be a loving God and yet command the extermination? That's what the word harem means, extermination of entire populations of people. What do we think? He is also a God of justice, perfect justice. One of the biggest mistakes that we make when we talk about grace with people is that we make it sound like it's a free-for-all. It makes it sound like that, well, God broke open the doors and you can just run blissfully through and just on forward. What we forget, what we often talk about, but we often forget is the connection that allows for us running free into bliss possible. And that is someone had to have justice served because of something we did. It costs somebody something for the brunt of that. Now, sometimes in dealing in these situations, God calls people to task on their own because of their sin. From what we understand about Sihon and Og, there was nothing godly in their communities whatsoever. In fact, they were probably what? Do we know? Probably what? Evil. What else? It's right, completely right. What else? What was the big thing that was going on over there in that time? Idol worshipers. They're pagans. They decided that they would go out and cut down a tree, and they were going to fashion through careful carving something that they were going to bow down to and worship, and eventually in some situations, take their children and burn them to death before this piece of wood that they had to carve, that can't talk, they can't move, they can't respond. Does everybody see the deludedness of this idea? Now here's one thing that we know. God never, God never, not one time ever in Scripture, He never brings punishment against anyone where He did not first give them a revelation of Himself. Never. God always gives a revelation of Himself. Wait. Yes. And if we understand God is perfect righteousness and understanding mm-hmm. of justice, then he wouldn't. Yes. In fact, along with that, did everybody hear what Wade said about that? Everybody hear what, what he said? <clears throat> the whole idea is, is that these people were obviously beyond hope in order for God to exact such a judgment upon them in that way. If you deal with something like the situation of Jonah, one of my favorite chapters to go to is Ezekiel chapter 18 to read through it. And the reason is because you actually see Yahweh God begging and pleading with people to not continue down a path of destruction, but rather to turn away from their wicked ways so that they would live and that he would make them to live. 
So you find that God is an extremely personal God about these types of, uh, of situations as far as how, how civilizations are living their lives. In Jonah's case, Jonah didn't want to go, but what happened when he ended up showing up and telling them about the coming judgment? They repented in sackcloth and ashes. I think it said even their animals had sackcloth and ashes. Laverne, you ever done that out at your place? Like, all right, all the cows, sackcloth ashes immediately. The Lord's convicted my heart. I went to church today, I got saved, and we got to do something, right? Something like that. So, but I mean, the, what's that? They weren't taking any chances because they heard the truth, they responded to the truth. And then did God destroy them still? Ah, it's too late for you guys. No, he didn't do that. He totally had mercy on them. And did it not make Jonah mad? Oh man, it made him mad. And why, why are you so mad, Jonah? Because I knew you're a gracious God. And I knew that if they would have listened to me, you wouldn't have punished them. You know what that says? It says that God's concept of mercy and justice and judgment is much more in alignment with what we would have decided. And see, there's the problem. When someone comes at this situation, they say, well, how could God do this to these people? Think about it for a second. It is only God who could do this to these people. Because only he would be able to assess the situation fairly and so allow it to be done. Or so even cause it or command it to be done. Why is that? Because no one else can judge righteously and perfectly and justly as God can. Does that make sense? Notice the concept. The concept in the situation always wants to be right here. We want to be so close to it and we want to handle it like this. And we don't stretch back for a second and ask the question, what has God seen in this whole time? Do we have a complete rundown history of Sihon, of the Amorites? We don't. We probably have to do a lot of digging to find some books that are probably moth-eaten and falling apart that are still not going to be able to capture completely the picture of what was actually going on firsthand there. However, none of it was a surprise to God because he knows it all. Therefore, he judges it perfectly. So yeah, excellent, excellent point. Excellent point about that. So in this idea, let's take a look at some of these scriptures because these are hard, hard scriptures to deal with. So Deuteronomy 7, start in verse 1. I know we're skipping ahead a little bit. You can just pretend we covered more. How's that? Uh, so we won't have Sunday school for the, after this for the rest of the year. We'll pick back up in January. <clears throat> the next two Sundays we won't have it. And we'll pick up in the middle of chapter 3, just to let you know what pace this class is going to go, right? So I'll be 90 by the time we're done. Uh, chapter 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it. Now, what have we seen about this word possess so far in this book? It also means what? Not just conquer, but something special. Inherit. It's the idea of inheritance. Remember, God is giving them the land as an inheritance to have. So when they talk about possessing the land, it's because God is giving it to them as an inheritance. So the idea here, entering to possess it and clears away, now pay attention, many nations, many nations, not just a few people, not just the guy that keeps throwing your paper over in the shrubs, okay? This is nations and nations of people before you, and he lists them. The Hittites, the Girgashites, real quick, if you want a great study, study the Hittites and what archaeology has found in the past 100 or so years. It's incredible. It's incredible what, what has been found to validate the existence of the Hittite people. It's amazing. Uh, the Hittites, the Girgashites, 
and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. You start sweating a little bit. You're hoping your name's not on there, right? The Jeremiahites, ooh. Uh, notice, seven nations, seven nations, what? Greater and stronger than you, okay? The Lord is going to remove many nations, seven great nations, who are greater and stronger than you are. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall harem, utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. What is another word for covenant that we talked about a while back? Does anybody know? What's another word for covenant that we talked about? I said, when you think covenant, think this word. Contract. Who said it? I don't have any more. I don't have any more, man. He's like covering up with his Bible. Contract. You're exactly right. There you go. There you go. Now, Connie, I took a lot of thought in giving you that. And you just give it away to somebody else. Uh, contract is the idea. Now, notice what he's saying. Do not come into any agreement that is binding with them. Why is that? Because back at that time, if you came into a covenant or a contract with somebody, you actually had to keep your word. You were actually bound to it as an oath before the Lord. Don't make any contract with them. Show no favor to them. And I'm not for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised as if you dug that word favor actually means grace. Show no grace to them. Show no mercy to them. So good idea. There you go. Verse three, furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Now, here's a question. This is such a silly little topic, but man, it's so important because we see it every day. Why would God tell the Israelites, do not intermarry with the people of this land? Why? <clears throat> is it because he's a racist bigot and hates other people? No. What's the problem at hand? Could lead them astray. They become one. Possibly pollution of the bloodline. But I don't know in particular because we would only be concerned about what comes through Abraham to David from David to Jesus. That's what we'd be concerned about. Women have a way of making you do things you wouldn't normally do, would you? Hey, let's be serious. Baby, I love you. It's true. Do, do me a favor, for real. For real. First Kings. Let's see it. I mean, if you're going to hate a preacher for telling the truth, at least know he's telling the truth. All right? Let's see here. First Kings. Uh, go to chapter uh, 11. Verse 1, King Solomon. Now, now, hang on, guys. Listen to me real quick. Guys, smartest man that ever lived besides the Lord Jesus, okay? As smart as you could get without being omniscient, okay, is what we're talking about. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. That should have been a problem right there. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate 
with them. And if you look verse, verse, uh, if you've got a little number next there to the word associate, the idea is you shall not go among them. That doesn't mean travel through their land. That means don't get with them is the idea if everybody gets that, right? You shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Let me tell you this. Sensuality is powerful. That's why we have such a problem with it today. And if we don't think that things like pornography are an idol, we are seriously deceived. Sexual temptations and enticement draw people away to the most craziest things they never would have thought they would have ever done. And they sit there and they look around at their life and they're like, I'm about to forfeit my family. I'm about to be permanently in debt for the rest of my life. And many people, because they can't handle it, will end up committing suicide over situations like that. What did it come from? Playing around with that stuff. Simply playing around with it. So notice, Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, wives turned his heart away from other gods and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been for Solomon went after Ashtaroth the goddess of the Sidonians and after Milcom the detestable idol of the Ammonites Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem. Notice how the geography is so perfect there so you know exactly where he screwed up at. Everybody see that? Here is the evidence of his mishap. It says here, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. In fact, Molech is the one later on when you get into Isaiah, Jeremiah, into the prophets, Ezekiel, and all those things. Molech is the God of which people would burn their children to, would actually take their children and sacrifice them by burning them on the altar. Because by intermarrying with people, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be women, let's be honest. It's just a society that has a worldview that is absent from the Almighty Creator. They trust in something else. They, they show value and esteem to things that are not of like-mindedness of people who have been set apart for the Lord's purposes. And what does it do? It convolutes the purposes. Anybody ever heard of the, 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 the guy that's uh, standing on the chair and you reach over uh, try to, and have them try to pick you up? You ever, you ever heard of that? Okay, some of you have. If you have, raise your hand. Okay, so a couple of you have. Do me a favor. Want to be my... Uh, Assistant? Okay. Come over here real quick. Sit on the ground. Don't worry. Sheila can clean it later. Okay? But sit on the ground. Okay. Leland's on the ground. Okay? Leland is a pagan. Big old pagan. And not just a pagan. He's an idolater. And not just an idolater, but he worships in some weird sex cult, probably in Madison somewhere. Okay? So, but in doing so, but in doing so, I'm a believer in Christ, right? And what I am seeking to do is to win him to the Lord. And so the idea is, is I'm going to go about and I'm going to make sure that he gets saved. And I'm purposed within myself that it's going to happen, right? 
And so, well, how do I do that? Well, I'm going to hang out with him a bunch because that's what Jesus did. Jesus always hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes. Understand this. You're not Jesus. Okay? That's important to understand. And so what do I do? Whenever Leland reaches up his hand towards me in order to take my hand, and I'm going to pull him up here, you think he's got a better chance of pulling me off this chair? It's just like that in this life. Thank you. It's just like that. You will find... God says that when you get with these people, they are going to jerk you into a world of existence that forgets me. So that's why he's commanding this. Now back to Deuteronomy 7. Verse 4. For, and remember, for is what is known as a causal conjunction. It is giving you the reason for the statement or concept that was just made. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And if that wasn't bad enough, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you. Now, thankfully there, it doesn't use the word harem, right? Because God has a covenant to keep with these people. Notice it says on, but thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars, Smash their sacred pillars and hew down their ashram, ashram and burn their graven images with fire. In other words, you get rid of their places of pagan worship. Notice that that right there, you tear down their altars. Where do they worship these false gods? Guess what? Tear that place down. It's no longer to be around. How about the next one? Smash their sacred pillars. Get rid of all symbols of pagan worship. It's not even to be remaining. If it's made of gold, melt it down and create yourself something fun. Notice it says here, verse, verse, or sorry, number three in this part one, hew down their ashram. An ashram was actually a pole that had been set up that was considered a cultic worship pole. And it was a place where people would gather around and do their little dances or whatever it was. It was a center. And Asheroth was a pole that was considered for cultic worship. It was for cults, essentially. Pagans worship there. Tear all those things down. Get rid of them. Notice the last one. Burn their graven images with fire. Get rid of their idols. Get rid of whatever they say Molek is or Ashtaroth is or Bel is. All those things. Remove them. He says here, verse 6, For you are a what? You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen what we saw in the Old Testament. Bahar has picked you for a purpose, a task, a reason, something to do. You have chosen you to be a people for his own possession, for his own inheritance, out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. They have a special calling. Now look over at verse 16. It says here, you shall consume all the peoples whom the Lord your God will deliver to you. Your, sorry, forgive me, your eye shall not pity them, nor shall you serve their gods. For, here's the reason, now look at it closely. That would be a what? A snare to you. If you don't take care of them decisively, you have set a trap for yourself. Now, does everybody see that God cares most about people doing the right thing, the best thing? Does everybody see that? The best thing for them to possibly do is to get rid of these people for their own sakes. Now you say, wait a second, is that selfish? It's not selfish because if they were at the point where they could still be saved, I trust you, God would send a prophet in to set the thing right. He would do it. Then it would be up to them whether or not they would listen. So now let's go to our next reference. Deuteronomy 20. 
And what did I give you, 14 through 16? 16 through 18, okay, good. I have it written down in my Bible. I didn't write it down on my paper. Turn there real quick, chapter 20 of Deuteronomy. Good chapter, by the way. Uh, verses 1 through 15 of chapter 20 give you general laws for warfare after they settle in the land with other people, offering a terms of peace and those types of things. But then when you get to uh, verses 16 through 20, I think that it is, it deals specifically with um, the rabble-rousing of the Canaanites and Hittites and Perizzites that's going on right now in all their pagan idol worship, what they're dealing with at that moment. So it says here, verse 16, Only in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes. But you shall utterly destroy Haram. There it is again. You shall utterly destroy them. The Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite and the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Verse 8, so that, here's your reason. If you have an NASB Bible, anytime that you see the words, so that, always think to yourself, here is the reason why this has to happen. God is going to give me a reason for what he has just said. So that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against so that so, sorry, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. Does that make sense to everybody? They may not teach you to do all according to their detestable things. In other words, they start by convincing your mind and then your actions become detestable, and next thing you know, you've sinned against the Lord your God who loved you, redeemed you, led you out, has given you an inheritance, will care for you, all of those things. That makes sense to everybody. Okay, great. Now the next one, Joshua. Was it Joshua 10? 11. It's going to be a good day. Joshua 11. By the way, we are having James study tonight. It's the last... Last day of the book of James. We're going to finish the book tonight. So if you missed all the ones before, still come, and hopefully that will entice you to want to read all that you missed, right? Maybe. Okay. Chapter 11 of Joshua. Look at verse 10. Then Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all these kingdoms. They struck every person who was in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There's the word harem again, just so you're seeing how it works. There was no one left who breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. Joshua captured all the cities of these kings and all their kings, and he struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed, there it is again, them, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. However, Israel did not burn any cities that stood on their mounds except Hazor alone, which Joshua burned. All the spoil of these cities and the cattle the sons of Israel took as their plunder, but they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. They left no one who breathed. If you go down to verse 21 of chapter 11, then Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron to Deber, uh, from Anab in the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua utterly destroyed Haram, them with their cities. Utterly destroying is the idea. So that's what we're getting at. These are hard things to deal with. 
These are hard things when somebody says, well, how could your God do this if you ever end up in that situation? The reason is, is because God is cleansing this land in order to bring in his people. Now, let, don't let this surprise you. If this, if this surprises you, you don't believe the book of Revelation. I think that's important, okay? If, if this captive, if you're, oh my gosh, I can't believe God doing this. You, you have not fully understood what is happening in the book of Revelation. And so to finish today, let's turn there real quick and see that. Then in January when we get together, we'll pick up chapter 3, verse 1. I know we've moved through that a little bit, but we'll refresh a little bit and move forward. Revelation, look at chapter 19. And just real quick, so I can give you a glimpse into the judgment seat of Christ in this situation, because we know that it happens after the rapture and before the second coming of Christ when he actually uh, touches down on the earth. And so it happened sometime in that seven-year tribulation period. Look at chapter 19, verse 7. It says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, God made ready. Is that what it says? No, made, made herself ready. How many ladies have been to a wedding recently? Nobody's been to a wedding recently? How many has ever been to a wedding ever, including your own? Okay, great. Did you get all gussied up for it? Right. In fact, you're like, I, I'll never look this hot again as I do on my wedding day, right? Right? Somebody went, and you're just on fire, right? Good stuff. You get all dressed up. You made yourself up for that day. You made yourself ready for what was getting ready to commence. Verse 8, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for causal conjunction, right? Here's the reason. The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And actually, righteous acts, it's a pretty good translation. But in the Greek, the word actually means their righteousnesses. It's actually the plural of righteousness. So, pluralize righteousness. Righteousnesses. Their righteousnesses of the saints. In other words, their righteous deeds, their righteous works. The fine linen that some believers get to wear is a result of their righteousnesses that they did in response to the word of God for the glory of the Savior. In other words, they were living their lives obediently, and so they get to wear that. Verse 9, then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are, true, the true, these are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And then we burst into the greatest scene, right? Watch. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... And he who sat on it is faithful and true, and in righteousness he what? He judges and he wages war. This is not a time where I've come to seek and save the lost. That was his first coming. This is a time where he comes to judge and make war. In fact, in chapter 1 of Revelation, when you see the picture of Jesus Christ, when John hears the sound of many rushing waters and he turns around to see Jesus, he sees Jesus with a sash across his chest. The priestly garments would have a sash around the waist. 
But for some reason, Jesus has a sash that stretches from his shoulder and comes down around his hip. And the reason is, is because the sash across the chest is the sash that a judge would wear at that time. He is actually dressed or presenting himself or showing himself to John in that first revealing of himself in a glorified form as the judge who has come to judge. And so notice, he judges, he wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, didn't we just see that before? I believe this is faithful believers that get this privilege and this opportunity here. It says here, uh, let's see here. Uh, uh, we're following him on white horses. And we're not there to do anything. We're just there to cheer. Isn't that cool? It's not like we came to fight. It's like, well, let me get my gun, Jesus, and we'll go in there. And... No, it's just like, y'all get on the horses and follow me. And, and I'm going to take care of the situation. And y'all just, woo! I love it, man. We get to be cheerleaders. How cool, right? So notice what it says here. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may what? Strike down the what? Nations. Nations. Striking down nations. The time of grace in history is over at this moment. He is there to strike down the nations. Will he be gracious afterwards? Of course. But at this moment, it's judgment time. It's judgment time on these people who have denied him. So notice that he may strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Does everybody get that this isn't Disney World? Okay, it, it is him having to settle the accounts and clear the stage so that he can establish his literal, physical, theocratic kingdom. He says here, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, not on the sun, in the sun. That is just strange, right? And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. Time out. Everybody realize that this angel just gave open season permission to the birds to have golden corral on everything that Jesus just killed. That's crazy. Can you imagine being up on a mountain and looking out and seeing the valley of Megiddo, what we call Armageddon? covered in dead people, blood four feet thick to the horse's bridle, just or four feet deep, bleh, four feet deep. Can you imagine? Those are some high waders to be wading out through that stuff. And you're watching it, and this angel is calling for a feast. Hey, everybody here that denied the Lord Jesus, followed the Antichrist, took the mark of the beast, denied revelation that was given to them and served themselves instead of being willing to believe in the Lord and it possibly costing them their lives, Jesus has killed them. And all he had to do was speak and they all died. Now all of you birds get to eat. You know, how did that mess get cleaned up? Birds. I mean, it's, it's a picture, man. It is a picture. So notice here, Verse 18, so that you may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses, 
and of those who sit on them in the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. Didn't matter who you were. You died. Scary. It says here, and I saw the beast, the man of lawlessness, and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled. Now, now understand how far the delusion has gotten. The, the beast, the man of lawlessness, and all the armies of the world that he gathered together to fight against Israel, they are assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Now pause for a second and imagine. You're there with the best artillery that you possibly can. The man of lawlessness is commanding, this is the way we're going. We're going to kill those Jews. We're going to trample Jerusalem. We're going to take it over. All this stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, we're going to do this. We're on this cause. Yeah, we're the coolest. You go, guy. You know, whatever, okay? We're ready. And then all of a sudden, the sky rips open. Because that's what heaven is. It's another dimension. It's beyond whatever the sky is. And here comes Jesus with the description we just saw, right? King of kings, Lord of lords, eyes like flames of fire. When he speaks, it's like mighty rushing waters, a sword coming out of his mouth. I don't know if that's literal, literal, or figurative literal, but regardless, it's what kills people. Okay, guys, turn your guns on him. Does that sound like the most insane battle command you've ever seen in your life? Yeah! Right? It's startling. What happens? And the beast was seized. That didn't take much. And with him, the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest, everybody else, were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled, were filled. The birds gorged themselves on the flesh of these people. So this idea of utter destruction should not be surprising to us. In fact, if you think about it, be honest with yourself. This is what we're hoping for, right? Think about it. When you pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed, holy be your name, your what? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Don't leave the kingdom come out. The kingdom is not the Catholic Church. I don't care what they try to tell you. We're actually praying for the end of the world when we pray that. We're actually praying for our Messiah to finally return, for the great Christ to return. Yes. Time period. End of the tribulation. End of the seven-year tribulation. At that time, yes. And then there will be a thousand-year reign of Christ. Yes. And Satan will be bound for that time. Yeah, uh, no, no, he stays there. Satan is bound for the thousand years, and then he is released for a short time in order to deceive people. Right now? <laughs> at the end of the tribulation, at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, the false prophet and the man of lawlessness will be thrown in there, alive. And what you see is that after the 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ, the literal physical reign of Christ on earth, while he's governing, and if you've been faithful to the Lord, you'll be serving out in regal positions alongside him. You know, you, you might be, Steve might be over Madison one day. Ship this place up for, for Jesus kind of thing, you know? We don't know. But, but it'll all be divided up like that. His, his, his perfect government will be distributed in that time. And in do, what's that? There'll be sin for one reason and one reason only. 
Because the people who were alive and were ushered into the tribulation, who weren't killed during the tribulation, they will be ushered into this time where the kingdom will be on earth. And they still have flesh on their bones. Satan is held back. He's restrained right there at the moment. He's locked away in the abyss. So you don't have him actively tempting people. But here's the amazing thing. No, no, not at all. No, no, no Flip Wilson on this one. Exactly right. Uh, but here's the thing. I often find that I don't need the devil enticing me to do anything, to just do dumb things, right? I'm perfectly capable of doing fantastically dumb things on my own. And so that's what's going to happen. So during that time, you're going to have sin take place, and you're going to have a massive population explosion because there's going to be a lot of procreation that goes on with those people. Now, we won't be there, for, or we won't be there in a fleshly form for the simple fact of the rapture has occurred, the judgment seat of Christ has taken place. Each one has received their reward uh, in that situation, and each one will be si assigned certain responsibilities uh, that correspond to those things. And so we will actually be in glorified reigning positions. So that won't be us. But whoever will be left on there, which I would say would mainly going to be Jews that are left alive. That's why their inheritance is of an earthly nature, and our inheritance is of a heavenly nature. It's one of the biggest distinctions between Israel and the church that a lot of people get wrong. So does that help? Okay, great. Good. So notice, this whole idea of utter destruction of things, it's not a joke. Understand that it's all according to righteousness. It's according to justice. And the very character of who God is, is what dictates how that justice is meted out. And I think that's important. Because to question God doing that questions who God is and making the decision to do that. You see what I'm saying? If we're questioning that, now all of a sudden we've realized that the real flaw in our thinking is we need to back up and reassess our minds with who is God. Because right thinking about God is what's going to spring to living or to right living in light of who God is. Does that make sense? Makes all the difference in the world. So, excellent question though. Anybody got anything else? Uh, Revelation 1, when he had the sash across, is what we're talking about. Yeah, Revelation chapter 1. It says that when he appears to John, when John's writing these things down, he hears a voice behind him. When he turns around, he describes a picture of the glorified Christ that he sees, and he makes mention of the sash that goes from his shoulder down to his waist. Uh, if you were a priest, if he was dressed as a high priest at that time, he would have the breastplate on, and then he would have a sash around his waist. Uh, but that's not the role he's serving out. And that should be very... That should be very uh, discerning for us when we're interpreting the book of Revelation, because honestly, interpreting it for the most part is not hard. I believe chapter 13 is extremely difficult to understand. But the rest of it, if you know your Old Testament, it all clicks together pretty easily. It really does. Um, but when you see that, that should really be a marker for us is, okay, I need to have the mentality that Jesus is approaching this book as the judge, because it's, it's not revelations. It's not what it is. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you want to know Jesus Christ revealed in his full form, this is the play out of it. So, all right, let's pray together. Father, such a difficult thing for us to maybe wrap our minds around in, in the idea of destruction of people, and we often accredit that to innocent life. Uh, Father, we all need salvation, and, and your son has graciously died to provide it for everyone. So help us, Father, uh, to have our minds set right about that, Lord, to respond accordingly to it and father to realize the urgency of the limited time we have on this earth people need to know about christ they need to know that they have been freely forgiven if they would just believe they would have life everlasting thank you god that we can be bearers of this beautiful message we pray in christ's name amen